ask you to bless this time as we start the study of this new book. We ask your spirit to guide, lead, show us what you would want us to see as we examine this and, and look at where we're, what you have in store for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is also known as the weeping prophet. He is in tears a lot. He is lamenting a lot. He is also the writer of Lamentations, which was the lament over the destruction of Israel. Uh, much of what he talks about is sorrow and sadness. Uh, the book was written from the beginning age of, of, of his timeline would be about 629 B.C., would be when he started at the earliest uh, part of his kingdom. We know that because he is going to start in uh, Josiah's reign in the 13th year. And it will go all the way to 529 B.C. Uh, for the kings that he covers. He is going to be a prophet for 42 and a half years by the kings that he has told us he uh, prophesied to which is a long time to be the prophet. And just like uh, Samuel, he got called at an early age. We don't know exactly how early. Doesn't appear to be quite as young as Samuel was, but we don't know. He's going to preach. He's going to teach for 40 years, and, and we find in chapter 1 that he complains that I'm just a child. I can't, <laughs> nobody's going to listen to me, and we'll, go, we'll cover more of that. But So we don't know how old he was when he said he was a child because Solomon, on you know, when he was a king and he said, what is, and God says, what do you want? He goes, oh, I'm just a child. I can't rule my people. And we know that he was like 20 and 25 years old, uh, which isn't too far-fetched. If Jeremiah was 20, 25 years old, he, he gets to uh, be a prophet for 40, 40 and a half years. That would still put him in his 60s, which is not unreasonable. So we don't know on this. We do know that his time length of preaching is this long. Uh, he starts in the 13th year of Josiah which means he has 18 years that he is a prophet for Josiah because Josiah uh, ruled for 31 years. So in his 13th year, gives him that, that we have 18 years left. Uh, he doesn't list uh, Jehoi Jehoiahaz in his list, but Jehoiahaz only ruled for three months. <laughs> and then uh, Jehoiachaz was re replaced by Jehoiakim, who... Uh, ruled for 11 years and he rebelled and he was replaced by Jehoiachin who also only ruled for three months and then he was replaced by Zedekiah and Zedekiah is the last king of Babylon when they go uh, Babylon of Israel before they go into the captivity of Babylon and he rules for 11 years so we have the 11 11 and 18 which gives us 40 years of reign plus the two, three months, so 40 and a half years that he reign, that he is, reigns, is prophet. And he also is prophet after they're taken into captivity as well. So we don't know how much longer after that, you know, because he doesn't give us a time frame because the kings are gone, so he doesn't give us a time frame. He doesn't start talking about the kings of Babylon and their time frame. So he is going to be one of the prophets that lasted a long time. Um, in the first chapter, it says that he is the son of Elkiah, Elkiah, excuse me, and Elkiah is mentioned in 2 Kings 22.8 as the high priest 
in Josiah's time that found the word, the law of God. So apparently, now there's no absolute proof, but the time frame is perfect. Yeah, uh, 13 years before that. In 2 Kings, just Hel- um, let me make sure I get the name right. Hilkiah is mentioned in 2 Kings 22.8. He is the one that finds the, the book of the law and gives it to Josiah. And Josiah then reads the book of the law, which he has not read because it's been lost in the, in the junk of the temple. And tears his robe. Josiah tears his robe and says, you know, hey, we've sinned. We, you know, we've got a lot of problems here because we have been violating God's laws. And so because Jeremiah is that person's son, I would say that this is the same person. Uh, there is some doubt whether it is or not, but I think, it, I think it's too coincidental that, you know, a few years after this is found by the high priest, it says that that's his father. Um, no proof about it, but that is our only biblical reference. The one thing we do know is that he is of the priest's tribe. So he is, Jeremiah is a, uh, of the son of, a uh, line of Aaron because he is a priest. He's not just a Levite, but he is a priest. And he lives in the town of Anaroth, Anathoth, which is a Levitical city that was given to the Levites uh, when Joshua took over the, the promised land, he gave certain cities to the Levites, and that would be in Joshua 21, verse 18, that it lists this city as a Levitical city. So we don't, again, we don't know for sure that he was related to the high priest. We, I don't know how common that particular name was. It's not given many times in the Bible, so I don't think it's a hugely common name as far as the Bible's concerned, but there is questions on whether he was the son of the high priest or not. Uh, And I'm going to leave it at that because there's no proof one way or the other. You read different people and they say different things. I just looked up his name to see if there was any other references and there it was as a high priest. And then I tried to validate it and some people go, no, it wasn't true. He was just a, you know, son of a regular priest. And others said, yes, he was the son of the the high priest. I'm going to say because it was found in the right time frame, to be, you know, be there, I'm going to say I kind of believe that his father was the high priest that found the book of the law. Uh, but that's my opinion, and it's worth what it is, nothing. All right? Uh, so we have this going on. He found that book. It's, you know, um, everything about Josiah. Josiah was the last good king of Israel or Judah. Uh, and he had one of the best reigns. I mean, if, they, if Israel was going to come out and be totally repentant and, and last long, it was going to be because of Josiah's reign. And Josiah did one thing that none of the other kings did. He got rid of the high places as well. So he tore down the temples all around Jerusalem that Solomon built for his wives. <laughs> and most of the time, the other kings got rid of all the, the altars and everything, but they didn't get rid of the high places around Jerusalem. And Josiah actually really tried to clean up the religious activities of Israel. And the people responded while he lived and kind of put it under threat of law, but their hearts were not turned away, uh, turned away from their sin to God. They did all the actions because basically the king ordered it. 
you know, and the idea that we can't enforce morality, you know, we can't legislate morality, we can, but it doesn't change people's hearts. And that's what happened in Josiah's day. So we have this going on, all of this is happening. Josiah is going to start during the reign of Josiah, and then he's going to have four consecutive kings that are evil kings. And Israel goes deeper into deeper, deeper and deeper into sin with each one of the reigns of those kings until God says enough is enough and take, takes out Judah and, and, and takes them captive. So this is, the, this is where we're laying out on this. Uh, basically, the themes in the book is a lot about uh, backsliding, bondage, <laughs> captivity. Uh, Jeremiah was not a very popular prophet with any of the four kings after Josiah. Uh, he would be thrown into prison almost every time he spoke to them. He would be thrown into the dungeons, the cisterns, wherever they wanted to throw him, they, they put him into captivity. And I don't know that I could have been Jeremiah. You know, knowing that every time I go to speak, I'm going to be, I'm going to be punished because I'm giving, from the king's perspective, he was treasonous. He kept saying, God is going to judge you. And this is the problem when, when people speak the truth and people don't want to hear the truth, especially when it's talking about the nation being judged, then they're going to be called traitors. And all we're trying to do is get people to accept that God is in charge and we're, not, and we're violating his rules. And this is where America is moving very quickly into is judgment from God and we're seeing more and more judgment from God in just about everything that happens. Our weather, our finances, our, our uh, health, you know, just about every area is being seen to be under judgment. We're having more and more drought conditions, farming, farming not producing everything, and we can produce great quantities of crops through our science, and even then, they're being destroyed because of God stepping in and saying, we're not gonna let all of this happen. And so we're seeing all these judgments coming and it's time to pay attention because God is going to bring it. And yet anybody who says that this is all, you know, that God is bringing judgment is looking, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're a traitor. You don't care about our country. And all. And, but the pr problem is Jeremiah cared about his country greatly. He wanted, he cared so greatly. He wanted them to repent so that they can continue to be a country. And this is the way we are in our day. I want to see our country repent so that we can continue to be a country and a great influence for the Lord. Not just to be a great country, but it's really sad to me is that America used to send more missionaries out to than anybody in the world. And in the last decade or two, we've become the one that receives the most missionaries in the world. We have all these countries sending the missionaries to America. Because they look at us and say, you guys are so far from God, you need missionaries. And we used to send missionaries everywhere. Criticizing everybody's beliefs and ideas, you know, that's, it just seems like that's our standard anymore, is to criticize rather than forgiveness. Well, we have to have forgiveness, we have to have standards, but we shouldn't be critical. And this is where the statement that Christians have, you know, we, we hate the sin and love the sinner. But the problem is the world does not distinguish between the two. You know, the sinner is what they do and that's who they are and you can't, you can't distinguish it between them. 
Whereas from Christianity, we go, you've got a soul that has fallen and God loves you, but he doesn't like, you know, doesn't love what you do. And the world doesn't make that distinction. You know, we, we call something a sin and we're attacking that person in the, in the eyes of the world. And this is the area where we talk two different languages. And if you've ever tried to talk to somebody about falling in love with God and following God and all these other things, if they're not a believer in Christ, they don't understand what you're saying. And it's impossible really to explain to them what it means to truly follow and honor and believe and love God until they get saved. And then all of a sudden their eyes get open and say, oh, that's what you were talking about. You know, and it's just amazing. You, know, you trail them, you, you, you express to them, but they just don't seem to understand. And it is something because the world does not understand spiritual things. And that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. He goes, I have told you earthly things and you don't understand. How can I tell you spiritual things? And this happens to us over and over again. If we're not really one with God, we do not understand the spiritual truths. And even when we are his children, we have a hard time understanding spiritual truth until we have come to the place where we experience the beginnings of it. And I've said this several times. The easiest thing we have to do is surrender to God. How do we surrender to God? We do it. Now, I've been in that place over and over in my life where I took forever to surrender. And then when I finally surrendered, I'm ready to kick myself because it was so easy to have surrendered and I fought so long and so hard to to get victory over something, and all it took was surrender. And we tend to go, well, God, you know, what is, you know, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this? Instead of just do it. And we all do it. We all fight. We all argue because we have to come to Christ and to God as little children, just trusting. And yet when we're adults, we go, I want to understand what I want to, you know, I can't just step and jump off the diving board into your arms, God. I, you know, I might have when I was five years old, but hey, I'm, I'm too big. You might not catch me. I'm too smart. I, I can't do something like that. And our own intelligence gets in our way of being obedient. And it's something we have to be very careful of to just honor God and, and, and follow him. In this, we find out that we are told about Jeremiah's lineage. He was young. He was empowered by God to do what he was done. And this first chapter has got a lot of his beginnings in it. And it's a wonderful chapter when he talks about his beginnings on it. The outline of the book is very simple. Chapter 1 is Jeremiah's call. We'll probably get done with that. Jeremiah's call? Call. Call. Call to, call to serve God. And then it talks about the rebukes and warnings that he has for the next 18 chapters. <laughs> then we get into divine judgment is foretold in chapters 25 and 29. Jeremiah starts talking about the restoration of Israel in chapters 30 and 33 because he's, he was a prophet also of hope. We're going into judgment. We're going to be punished, but God will restore and this is an important message. When God brings judgment on his people, he also has a restoration plan planned for them to bring them back. And this is even true for us as Christians. If, if we choose to sin and walk away from God, God will knock us down, put us on our knees, and when we repent, he will restore. 
because it's all by grace. So there's the restoration. Um, and then he talks about, uh, he makes prophecies against Jehoiakim and Zedekiah in chapters 40 and 44. And then he makes prophecies against the hostile nations through the rest of the book. So his prophecies are all over the places he's talking about this. He's, when Jerusalem is taken, he starts gearing his prophecies toward Babylon and the fall of Babylon. And because Babylon came in and they, and as God told others of his prophets, Babylon came in and was too harsh on the, on the Jewish people. And God says, I used you to punish them, then you were too hard. Now you are going to be judged. And it's kind of hard for us to understand sometimes how God will do this. You know, just the idea that he will use an evil people or evil activity to judge his people is hard to believe. And yet God does it all the time. And we see it over and over again in history. All through the Old, Old Testament, we see God using evil people to bring his judgment upon his people. All right, we're going to start with Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the pre of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of, of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, and to the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. All right. So here we're setting up the history, who he is that is, is being the prophet, what his history is. So it comes to Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, which we already talked about. This Hilkiah, I believe, is the one that was mentioned in 2 Kings to say the one that found the, the law of the Lord. And we are told his hometown is Anathoth, which is one of the Levitical towns we mentioned. And that is in the tribe of Benjamin. So this town is in the tribe of Benjamin. And that town is not a Benjamite city. Now, this is one of these things that's interesting. These Levitical towns that are in these tribes' areas are not belonging to that tribe. They belong to the Levites. It is very similar to if you are driving around and you go into an Indian reservation. All right, we go up, up, up there to the Wallapais or to the uh, Indians up there on 66, <laughs> Supai. <laughs> And you, you go on to their reservation, even though, as far as we're concerned, we haven't left Arizona, technically we are in a foreign country with different rules. And this is, and if you're a military person, it's the same thing. Once you go on to a military base, you're no longer in the, the state or the country that you started in. You are in military rules, military uh, activities under military judgments and so this is that type of thing he's in from this town that is even though it's in Benjamin he is not a Benjamite he's a Levite and so we see this he's given his hometown and it says it came in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon king of Judah so Josiah's father was Ammon Ammon was one of the not the worst king of Israel, but one of the bad kings of Israel. And so his father, and it's an amazing thing that 
Josiah, who rules, who's put on the throne at a very young age, honors God, even though his father did not honor God. And it is a real picture of how good people can come out of bad families. And conversely, we see, you know, Josiah is going to have, you know, have kings after him, his sons, that are bad kings, that don't follow God. And, you know, we as human beings like to say, well, they came from a good family. You know, we expect everybody to come from a good family to be good. And if you come from a bad family, you're automatically going to be bad, and that's not true. Each person is still responsible for their personal decisions. When I, when I got saved, I was the first one in my immediate family to get saved. My father was an alcoholic and drunk and womanizer and hardly home at all because of his drinking. My mom wasn't around all that much many times, and yet I sought God. And, but we've also seen families where generation after generation are following God, pastors, leaders, and, they, and all of a sudden they get somebody in their family that just goes off the deep end and says, I'm not going to follow God. Even though dad, grandma, and grandpa, and great-grandpa, and all these other people did, I'm not. People will make their own decisions. So here we have him and his, his father is bad. And in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, Jeremiah is called. And it says, and it says, and he came also in the days, the word of God came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, and un, in, unto the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, until, until the captivity, five months into the captivity. So Jeremiah is going to have a long reign. And we have these little markers that tell us exactly when he reigned. Because we know when Josiah reigned. We know when these when the fall of Jerusalem happened by history. So in this case, we know exactly when these statements are being made. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you, and before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for you shall go to all that I shall send you, and whatsoever I command you, you shall speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with you, to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have, set, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over nations and over the kingdoms to root out to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. All right, so here we have God coming in and talking to him. And I love this because we use this verse a lot, you know, for sanctity of life and everything. It's one of the key verses that people point out. Before I formed you, I knew you. I love this one because to me, this really just tells us how omnipresent God is. When I, th when I talk about omnipresence, you know, I talk about God being not just everywhere at the same time, but every time at the same time. All right? When God says something, you know, he, doesn't, he technically isn't prophesying anything when he tells us prophecies. 
He already knows what's happening because he's already there. Uh, so when he says this, when he says, before I formed you, I knew you. All right? Uh, and this is very important. He doesn't say, before I formed you, I know you. I knew you, which is a past tense statement. Before I formed you, I knew you. And this is wonderful for us. And this is why it's so wonderful for us as we walk in life, because there is nothing that's going to happen to us that God does not already know is going to happen. And that's hard for us to comprehend. And even though we have free will, he still knows what we're going to choose. So he still knows what's going to happen. It's not he just knows what he wanted to have happen. He knows what will happen. He knows every good decision I make. He knows every bad decision I'm going to make. And already knows what that decision is going to do and knows the ramifications of those decisions. And he may, has a plan that is good because he already knows. <laughs> and we need to really start understanding because it is easy for us to get angry at God because, God, how can you let this happen to me? Well, unfortunately, most of what happens to us is because of decisions we make. But even if they're not, he has a good plan for us by letting something happen to us. And he already knows the end result of that activity that's coming our way. And this is what he's telling Jeremiah. Before you, before you even formed, I knew you. And he says, and then... When you came out of the womb, I had sanctified you, separated. God had chosen him before he was even out of the womb. It shows how great our God is. He knows the beginning from the end. He, know, he knows the beginning from the end even before he created the beginning and the end, which is even harder to understand. Before he created the foundations of the world, he already knew everything about this world and the decisions that everybody was going to make and what he was going to have to do to get their attention and still created us, which is mind-boggling to me. We don't know what the future holds, so we're praying to the one who does know what the future holds so that he can give us what is good for us. But we don't know if it's going to be good or bad, whatever you do today. Which is one of the reasons our prayer shouldn't be, God, I need this, this, that, and the other thing. is to be, God, give me what I need to get through this, this day. Give me what I need to get, you know, or as Jesus said in his prayer, give me this day, give us this day our daily bread. What do I need for today? Don't give me enough bread to get me through for next year, but give me what I need for each day. And I believe that's not just physical he's asking for, but spiritual. What is our spiritual need? What is our spiritual desire? And he says, you have sanctified me. I sanctified you from the womb to be a prophet. And then it says, not just the prophet to Israel, unto the nations. So he's going... Jeremiah, you're not just a prophet to, to Judah, but you are a prophet to the whole world around you. Now, 
again, when we look at this, it doesn't strike us as much as it would have to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a Jew. The Jews don't have anything to do with the Gentiles. And God is telling him, you're going to be a prophet to the nations, which literally in the Hebrew is to the Gentiles. You know, and this is going to be like, God, why do you even care about the Gentiles? Because most of the Jews, even as far back as here, but especially in Jesus' day, Gentiles had one purpose in, 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 uh, in the world as far as they were concerned. And that was to be uh, fuel for hell. They were to be thrown into hell and be fuel for hell. And that was all that they looked at as Jews. They, they hated Jews. They weren't the chosen people. They didn't care about them. And yet every time God talked to his, his people, he's going, I want you ministering to the Gentiles. I want you talking to them. I want you to bring me to them. And the Jews never did their job of, you know, as, a, as a nation of presenting God to the Gentiles. In the book, the Pentateuch, every time God said and talked about worship, he goes, these rules are the same for you and for the strangers that live among you. So the Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship. Solomon recognized that the Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship. By Jesus' time, the Gentiles weren't even allowed anywhere near the temple to worship. They were allowed into the outer court, which is beyond the women's court. And they weren't allowed to go any closer to, to worship God without becoming Jews. And this was a problem. They were not obeying what God had said. This is also the problem when you read in the book of Acts, when God starts ministering to the Gentiles, the poor disciples are like, uh, what's going on here? Gentiles are getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Gentiles are becoming followers of Christ. What do we do? Do we make them become Jews? Or what, how does this work? And a lot of the book of Acts is that whole struggle between how do we accept Gentiles from a Jewish point of view that are worthless, that are becoming Christians and followers of Jesus, and what do we do with them? And all of this comes down to God's call from the very beginning. Now, the sad thing is that the Christian church, after a couple hundred years, started getting so anti-Semitic that they attacked the Jews with great, with great vengeance and started going after them. And we have all kinds of problems with that. And even to this day, there's a lot of anti-Semitism coming into the church. We have it in the idea of replacement theology. The Jews put Jesus on the cross, God rejected them, and it has nothing to do with them, and yet that's not what the book of Revelation says. The book of Revelation is all about the tribulation and the end days being about the Jews. So the church has not replaced Israel. Now, God has set Israel aside for, for a short period of time. He's dealing with the, with the church, but he has not forgotten Israel. He's got all kinds of promises that belong to Israel. And here we see this whole process going on. I knew you. And you're going to be a prophet to the nations. His answer, Lord, I can't speak. <laughs> I, I am a child. It kind of sounds a little bit like uh, Moses. Uh, Lord, I can't speak. I'm slow of speech. Don't, don't, you, you picked the wrong person. I think it's kind of interesting how often people, when they're called by God, make excuses. Do, I see myself doing that. I just do 
It's also true that when God calls us, he doesn't usually call us into our strengths. He calls us into something that we're weak in so that he can stand out. Because if we are called into a strength, then it's like, well, look what I've done. It's, look, you know, I, I came in with all these extra gifts and look what, you know, what, you, what, I, what I brought to you and God and look how successful I was. And it's very interesting to me because as I become a pastor and I'm getting to know the, many of the other pastors, I'm finding out that I tend to be an introvert. And I'm finding out that more, a lot of the pastors are introverts. And yet we have to stand up in front of people all the time and talk to them and, and minister to them one-on-one and, and all of that. And God seems to call a lot of introverts into being pastors. Why? So that he gets the glory for the, for the, for the lives that are changed in, in the growth. And we see this over and over. God will take the people, and I've seen it so many times. A new ministry will start, and you're going, God, you're using that person? That's the person you want to use? And sure enough, they build this great ministry, and, and they give God all the glory and all the power because they weren't capable of doing it. And they knew they weren't capable of doing it. And yet something great comes out of it. And here's Jeremiah. And we don't know how old he is, but you know, even if he's 25 or 30, he's still fairly young to start ministering in, in Jewish traditions. You're an adult at 12, but you really, the reason Jesus didn't start preaching until 30 years old is you couldn't be a rabbi in, in his day until you were 30 years old. So if he'd have started teaching before 30, then people would not have listened to him. Oh, you're just a young man. When you grow up, you'll, you know, you probably think differently. Jeremiah saying, God, I'm just young. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't, I, don't want, I, don't, I don't want to do this. I didn't want to do this. And God said, I called you. And then God told him, don't say I am a child. You will go where I send you. And whosoever I command you to, you shall speak. He's going, I will give you the strength. I will give you the words. I'm going to tell you who to go to. And you're going to go to all of these different people and minister. And he's told that he's going to speak. And then he says, be not afraid. Don't stand in awe or reverence these people. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you. In other words, God's saying, who are they? God of the universe is on your side. Do not be afraid. This is the same truth that we have when we're told to go out and share the gospel and, and lift God up and present him. So often we get afraid, and yet God is not only with us, he is inside of us, giving us the words to speak. And we need to really start understanding that God is in charge. God is in charge. He is with us. And as has been famously said, you and God make a majority. All right. Uh, when God is on your side, there's no group of people that is going to be strong enough to overwhelm whelm you and take a, you know, and and make a mess out of you because God is on your side. Now, once God is ready for you to go home, you're going home no matter what you do. And this is one of the one of the things I like to tell you know say, as long as I'm doing what God is wanting me to do, until He's ready for me to go home, I am safe. 
Now, it doesn't mean I'm not going to get hurt. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to happen. Jeremiah is going to be thrown into dungeons. He's going to be beat. He's going to be thrown into cisterns. He's going to be made miserable. But he is never defeated because God did not allow it. And we need to understand that even when we suffer pain or embarrassment or anything, God is still on our side and lifting us up. When he's done, when he's done and we're done, he'll take us home. Until then, we get to serve him and endure whatever comes our way. But he is not going to forsake us. And this is what he says. I, uh, I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then it says, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Now, this is the first indication that it sounded before that he was just being talked to. At this point, it seems that he has an actual presence being presented to him. And because it is the Lord, and the word here is Yahweh, which means the God, it is probably Jesus Christ himself talking to him. It's probably a Christophany. Jesus is the one saying, I'm going to be with you, and he reaches out and touches his mouth. Uh, because this is something physical. This isn't, you know, it could, could have been a vision, but it seems to be something physical. He says, he reached out, put forth his hand, and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I love this picture. God put the words in his mouth. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience. Many times when I'm preaching or teaching or when I'm witnessing to somebody, there are times when I start listening to myself speaking and it's no longer me speaking. It's God speaking through me. And happens more often when I preach or teach than anything else. But there have been times when I've been witnessing to somebody and I'm listening to myself talk and going, uh, all right, God, uh, I'm having fun listening to you because this isn't me talking anymore. It's my voice. It's my thoughts probably, but it's not me speaking. This is where Jeremiah was. God touched him and says, I have put my words in your mouth. And this is going to kind of blow him away. See this day, I have set you over nations and over kingdoms. He's been given a great power. Note nations and kingdoms, not just over Judah and the kings, but over nations. He is going to prophesy throughout this book. He's going to make prophecies that are being talked to by to Pharaoh, to Assyria, to Babylon. He preaches, and nations are listening to him. And this is the amazing thing that is promised to us in scriptures that we speak and we may end up speaking before kings and princes. And before we laugh about that, I know several guys that have gone off to be missionaries that ended up talking to prime ministers, presidents, kings. And they, when, when they were in school, they would have said, there's no way I'll ever be important enough to talk to these people. And yet God brings them into a place where their reputation is called, in, called out and they're called before them. This is Jeremiah. I'm just a kid. I can't, I can't talk to these guys. And he goes, I'm putting you over all of them. You're going to have the power to speak. And then he goes, you're going to be able to root out. And that literally means to pull up, tear out the, tear out the weeds. Uh, 
to pull down, pull down the strongholds, the, wall, the walled cities, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. He's saying, you're going to have a lot of power, Jeremiah. You're going to tear down the strongholds. You're going to destroy the strongholds of sin. You're going to build up my kingdom. You're going to encourage various individuals. Now, this is quite a calling. This is quite a calling to walk into and say, God has told me that I'm going to be great. Now, Jeremiah also did not understand all the hardships in between the two places. Uh, and this is where we need to understand. When God makes a promise to us, it is not going to just be uh, all kinds of sunshine and roses. There's going to be a lot of hardship and trials throughout the process. Jeremiah has told the good side of this. You're going to have power. You're going to be strong. I'm going to deliver you. You're going to speak. You're going to root up. You're going to destroy. But you're also going to build up and, you're going to, and encourage. He did not tell him all the times he was going to be thrown into the dungeon and, 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 and beat. And uh, Toward the end of his life, he's told that if you even come to, the t come to the palace one more time, we're going to kill you. So he sends his servant. Uh, and we're going to see that as we get into this. But we see over and over God's blessings come at a cost sometimes that we need to be aware of and to follow through with. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what see you? And I said, I see a rod and an almond tree. Then said, I, said, said the Lord unto me, you have, you have seen well, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And the word of the Lord came unto me a second time, saying, What see you? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north shall ev an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, and saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set everyone his thrones at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof around about, and against all the cities of Judah, and I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. So here we have Jeremiah starting to see his visions. And the first thing he says, what do you see? And he says, I see a rod and of an almond tree. And it's kind of very interesting. Rod is the staff. It's dead, dead wood, basically, that people lean upon. And almond means something to be awake. You know, I see the rod of an awakening. <laughs> and this is very interesting because God says, you have seen well, and I will hasten my word to perform it. I believe here that God is telling him there will be a prosperity after the judgment. And this is something that we need to understand. When God brings judgment, if the people repent, there will be a prosperity prosperity to follow, a repentance. The whole book of Judges is that whole idea. They get into, get into the sin, they don't repent, God brings judgment upon them, they finally repent, and God delivers them and gives them prosperity for 20 or 30 years, and, and then they go back into a cycle of sin, get judged, and God brings, when they repent, God brings in, brings in judgment. Jeremiah is going to tell them that you're going to be in judgment for 70 years. 
and then the people are going to repent and they're going to be returned to their land. Now, Isaiah tells them the same thing. Isaiah even tells them the king that's going to be their deliverer. <laughs> and we see all of this stuff going on, and it says, you have seen well, and I will hasten my word. Now, I like God's you know, words here. He says, I'm going to make it happen quickly. In this particular case, it's going to be 70 years plus the 40 years that he's ministering. So this, we're talking about 110 years later is God's quick action for them. Now, Jesus said, I return, behold, I will return quickly. That was 2,000 years ago. So God's desires are a lot different than our desires. You know, he measures time totally different than we do because he's eternal. And one of the things I have noticed, the older I get, the shorter the years seem to be. Uh, and I know there's still 365 days, and I haven't figured out the hours, but the hours have not changed in a year. The days don't change, but it sure seems like the days and the years go by very, very quickly. I was just thinking about this. I'm starting my seventh year at the prison, and it seems like I just started out there. Seven years just came out. Seven years. Well, six years. I'm starting my seventh year. But it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Uh, and so when you come from God's perspective of being eternal, what, what's 7,000 you know, 7, years, 10,000 years on this world from an eternal perspective? Uh, uh, blink of the eye. Yeah, I'm coming quickly. Uh, I'm coming quickly. And we as humans look, boy, God, you sure have a different definition of quickly, and he does. He's, he's judging time from his perspective, which is outside of time. So when he looks down at time, he says, it's quick. I've already done it. I've already done it for you. And here we have, he's going to hasten. Then he says, and the Lord said to me a second time, what see you? And he sees, I see a seething pot, a boiling pot, simmering pot. Uh, and its face is toward the north. And the Lord said unto him, out of the north shall evil break upon the inhabitants of the land. And that's exactly what happened at the end of the nation. The Babylonian Empire from the north comes down into Judah and conquers it. A boiling pot of destruction. And this is what he's saying. And it's facing basically from the north toward them. So it's going to pour out this boiling liquid to, to encompass Judah. And it says... And God says, For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall sit everyone his throne at the entering of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about it, and against the cities of Judah. During these last four, king, uh, well, last four kings of Israel, of Judah, they lost more and more towns. Every time they turned around, they would lose territory. And this is hard to imagine because in the heyday of Israel, when, it, when David and Solomon reigned, Israel owned all the land that God promised them. From the Euphrates to the Mediterranean to the Nile and back over again to the, to the Sinai uh, uh, desert of sin and just, just to the, to the uh, Canaan, uh, Canaan River Jordan, get the right name. They owned everything. And over those years, it kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to the point where by the time they come to these last kings, 
it's not much more than Jerusalem and a handful of villages all around them that belonged to them because they had lost so much territory. And God says, it's coming from the north. It's coming from the north. They will set up their reigns. And each time they'd put somebody in charge of those towns that were from, you know, usually the royal line, or at least the, the dukes and the duchesses, and, and, the, and those individuals would be put in charge of these things. And then finally they took Jerusalem. And it was just as God said right at the beginning. Right? While, while everything is still good, can you imagine this? When he's getting this message, Josiah, the good king, is still reigning. And God is saying, judgment is coming. Can you imagine if that was your testimony? You're at the heyday. Everything is being, everybody's worshiping God in the temple. Their sacrifices are being made. Everything looks to be doing good. And God says, judgment is coming. That would be a very hard message to be able to speak because people are not listening or paying attention. Then he goes, I will utter the judgment against, my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness who have forsaken me. So all of a sudden he's switching from this to the people of Israel. God says, I will bring judgments to all who have forsaken me, turned their back on me. Now remember, at this point in time, he's talking to them in the middle of a revival under Josiah. And he says, the people are already forsaking me. God understood the hearts of the people, even under Josiah's righteous reign, people were going through the motions. We were told to go to Passover. We're going to go to Passover. We'll celebrate Passover. We're going to go to Pentecost. We're going to go to Yom Kippur because the king says we must. We're not going to go to the hills and offer sacrifices, but boy, we really want to. You know, uh, and so God is saying, I know their hearts. I know what they're wanting to do. I'm going to bring this. And those that have burned incense into other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. There were still people in Josiah's day, even though it was Josiah went around and destroyed all the idols and the, and the altars to these idols, they still worshiped the idols. They couldn't do it out in the open like they had under King Ammon. But they would go to the caves, they would go to the mountaintops, they'd go to the, the, the forest dells and dens and, and worship these idols, knowing that if Josiah found out about it, he was going to destroy it and probably kill anybody that was there. But they still worshipped the idols because their heart wasn't turned to God as the king's was. Now, I'm sure the majority of the people had a heart that was turned to them because the king was setting the stage for it. But not everybody. And this is one of the things that is so important when we look at the scriptures. You know, we in America like our democracy. The majority rules. The only problem with majority rules is the majority is wrong more often than not. Always has been. Because the majority has a fallen sin nature and if they're not following God and making godly decisions, they will make ungodly decisions as a group. And we're seeing that more and more in our country this day. People are more often making ungodly decisions than godly decisions, and they're attacking those of us that want to make godly decisions. And this is what's going on here. Even though the king is asking them to make godly decisions, there's a lot of them saying, nope, we're not going to do it. Not going to bend our heart. Even though the king says so, we are not bending our heart toward God.
And Jeremiah, even from the very beginning of his call, God's saying, there's a lot of wickedness out there, and there's so much wickedness that I'm going to have to bring judgment upon the nation. Now, it's going to be 41 years later before it finally culminates. But he's told right from the beginning, it's not going to, it's not going to be a pretty picture. And I'm going to just finish these last three verses, even though we're right at the closing time. You, therefore, gird up your loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command you. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a defensed city of, and an iron pillar a, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, against the people of the land. And they shall fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Now here's the downside of what he was going to be given. Uh, he says, arise, gird up your loins, uh, therefore gird up your loins and arise and speak. These are active words. Jeremiah wasn't just going to sit around doing nothing. God says, get up, prepare yourself, and speak. Too many times Christians want to sit around until God makes them open their mouth and makes them walk out to wherever it is they're supposed to go. And, and I've heard people go, well, I'm just waiting for God to, to almost forcibly, and they're not going to say forcibly, but you know, drop whatever it is in my lap. <laughs> and God, you need to be where people are. One of the hard things about Christians is the longer we walk with God, the less lost people we tend to know unless we purpose to know lost people and get out where they are. One of the great things about working at the prison is I get to meet lots of lost people. All the time. I get to meet lost people. I get to meet a lot of saved people too, but I get to meet a lot of lost people and be able to talk to them and be able to share what little I can because I'm paid to be a teacher, not, not a preacher out there, but I get to talk to people every once in a while when they bring up the conversation. And because I was a chaplain when I first started there, they bring it up a lot. <laughs> you know, they bring it up a lot. They'll even ask me, why are you so happy? I love that question because then I can really tell them why I'm happy. Because I've got Jesus. And I get to tell them all about Jesus and what he does. And so here he was, arise, speak all that I commanded you. And then he said something that's very hard for us to understand. Be not dismayed or broken, lest I confound you before them. Because if you're going to be afraid of them, then you're going to appear broken and and and, and having problems before them. You're going to be dismayed by, by them. We need to get to the place where we give what we know about God. We are called to give testimony about what God has done for us. And the, what does that mean? We go out and tell what God has done. I don't have to have a whole lot of experience to tell people what I've seen and what, what God has done. I just have to tell them what, what he's done. It doesn't matter whether they believe me or don't believe me. It doesn't matter at all. I just tell them what I know. I you know, uh, the blind man that got healed by Jesus when he was questioned by, this, by the Sanhedrin goes, you know, how can a sinner do this? He goes, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but this I do know. I was blind, <laughs> but now I see. <laughs> all right? That needs to be our testimony. I didn't know this, now I know. I didn't know God, and now I know him. I can't tell you all the answers. I don't even have all the answers, but I can tell you what I know. And share what you know. 
Share what God has done. And this is what he's told. Go out and share. And then he goes, I love this in verse 18. I have made you a defensed city, a walled city, and an iron pillar. What does an iron pillar mean for them? Well, you can hit an iron pillar all day long with weapons and everything, and it doesn't hurt the iron pillar. Now, in our day, we can probably blow it up, but, <laughs> but in his day, iron pillar was still, and even in our day, an iron pillar is a nice place to be behind outside of high explosives to blow the whole pillar, you know, the whole block away. <laughs> but even in our day, an iron pillar is something that you would want to stand behind to be defended. And he goes, you are an iron pillar before them. And a bronze wall, and I love this, against the whole land. Now, this is kind of interesting. How many enemies does he have? It says, the whole land, the kings of Judah, the princes of Judah, the priests of the people, and the people. Just a few enemies. Just a few. The government's against you, the people are against you, the religious system's against you, but I am on, I am on your side. I have made you an iron pillar, I have made you a defense city, I have made you bronze. It doesn't matter what, how many people are against you, Jeremiah, I am on your side and I am protecting you. I am giving you strength. Now I, again, I am glad God did not call me to be Jeremiah. Maybe he has. Maybe I don't know what's coming in the future. But I, up until now, I have not been called to be Jeremiah. But the one thing I do know is whatever God brings our way, he will empower us to be able to get through it if we will just let him be our strength. In Jeremiah's case, he was told he was going to be his strength. Our case, you know, when Saul of Tarsus was called and became Paul, he did not know all of what was going to happen to him. He did not know all the beatings he was going to take and being stoned and thrown out of cities and, and chased out of every place. And, you know, if he had, I think he still would have gone. His call was strong. You know, God says, I have called you. And he knew all the stories of these prophets. He knew, he knew the troubles when people are called by God, how people respond. And this is something important for us to understand. When we are called, God will strengthen us to get through all the trials that we will face because he is the one that is the, our strength. So he's got all these enemies and he says, and they shall fight against you. <laughs> And when we get to see his life, we're going to see them fighting against him every at every turn. So much, and one of my favorite verses is in, very soon, he goes, he goes, I am tired, I'm paraphrasing, I am tired of being punished every time I speak. I am not going to speak again. And then the very next sentence says, your word burned in my mouth and I could not help but to speak. And I've had that happen at times where I know that I'm supposed to say something going, nope, not going to say it, not going to say it. And it just goes, and eventually you have to say what God says to say. And I, and I love that verse because God will do just that. And he says, they will come out and fight against, but they shall not prevail for I am with you and I will deliver you. God is on our side. He is with us. 
And as long as he needs us here to, be, to do the ministry of it, he will deliver. And I love this statement, I am with you and I will deliver. This is where our strength comes down to. I am with you and I will deliver. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, teach us to trust you completely and allow you to be our defense and to speak when you say to speak, be quiet when you say to be quiet, and, know, and, and the wisdom to know the difference. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.